1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety-three point nine KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is Today we're going to talk with Rachel Bovard. Uh, She is with the Heritage Foundation, uh, and we're going to talk about the Gorsuch nomination and the Senate showdown over his confirmation. Uh, As you uh, may know by now, the nuclear option, as it has uh, come to be called, was used, and the vote for his confirmation will take place most likely tomorrow. We'll explain the implications of this uh, dramatic shift in uh, Senate protocol and how that makes the Senate more like the house and whether or not that's important. We're also going to talk with the executive director of prep for kids, as well as the church liaison, Judy Bush and Joni Miletic will join us to talk about prep for kids. It's a release time uh, program that's available here in the Portland metro area. And what a tremendous opportunity it is uh, for children and families in our community. We'll talk with them about that and how you might uh, take advantage of or volunteer for the program Uh, To minister to young children in our community. But first, we'll take a look at the news. Senate Republicans deployed the so-called nuclear option today in their drive to confirm Judge Neil Gorsuch in this following a filibuster by the Democrats, dramatically changing the way the Senate does business in order to overcome that filibuster. In a fast-paced chain of events, majority Republicans voted to change the Senate precedent so that a high court nominee can move to final confirmation with a simple majority of just 51 as opposed to 60. Now, the uh, the original rule was designed to protect minorities so that if you are in the minority in the U.S. Senate, you at least have some uh, opportunity to have influence. And this process of um, moving away from that precedent began some time ago under the leadership of Harry Reid. So it shouldn't be altogether surprising yet. The trigger was pulled today by Senate standards. This was ground shaking. Majority leader Mitch McConnell uh, declared uh, he did so to restore norms and get past what he called the unprecedented democratic filibuster. So you have uh, precedents on either side, according to members, minority leader, Chuck Schumer, he countered uh, that the changes could send the Senate and the nomination process over the Cliff. Eh, Well, a bit of an overstatement, but it certainly does change things. Republicans succeeded in making the change on a party line vote this afternoon. The body then swiftly took another 55-45 vote to end debate. Tee up the final confirmation vote expected late tomorrow. We're going to talk with Rachel Bovard more about that uh, in our next segment. So stick around for a little uh, analysis on that. Interestingly, the uh, Wall Street Journal chronicles the New York Times coverage on the subject of uh, filibuster. And it seems to have uh, the standard has changed over time. Back in 2013, when former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid changed Senate rules to prevent the Republican minority from blocking votes on appointees to lower courts, as well as executive branch nominees, the paper's editorial board was sending a different message. Democracy returns to the Senate, announced a Times headline. Needless to say, their headline is a bit different now that the shoe is on the other partisan foot. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping arrived today for a two-day summit with the president at his uh, Mar-a-Lago retreat with North Korea and other pressing issues expected to be top of the agenda. This is a, a sort of a first meeting after the campaign in which President Trump said, or then candidate Trump said, some very harsh things about China. True or not, a uh, little tough to uh, to hear and then meet face to face. Trump kept it close to the vest uh, as to set the expectations for the meeting. It's going to be very interesting. Nobody really knows Trump predicted Thursday morning on Fox and Friends in a tone more tempting than uh, uh, one might expect. Well, the president uh, earlier had declared his meeting would be very difficult as we can no longer have massive trade deficits. And while he for years has railed against China's monetary and trade policies as hurting American workers, North Korea could rise to the top of their summit agenda, the first of what is expected to be many. He told Fox News uh, Pete Hegseth. Uh, That we have a big problem with North Korea. And while Trump would not say whether he would use the uh, trade as leverage to pressure China to exert influence in North Korea, he told Fox News that he would uh, be in there pitching. So you couldn't be much more vague than that. The meeting follows a burst of North Korean missile testing. On Tuesday, a Trump official said the clock has now run out to Pyongyang to end the testing of nuclear and ballistic missiles and that all options are on the table for us. A day later, North Korea fired a missile into the Sea of Japan, Pyongyang. Uh, took a similarly provocative action during Trump's meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at Mar-a-Lago in February. In Asia, to meet with Japanese uh, and South Korean defense officials, U.S. Pacific Fleet Commander Admiral Scott Swift told reporters uh, today that diplomatic efforts and sanctions have not been an effective counter to Pyongyang's aggression. Up to this point, I think it's fair to say the economic and diplomatic efforts have not supported the progress people have been anticipating and looking forward to. Well, the decision to host the Chinese leader in Florida has been viewed as an effort to make the diplomatic talk less formal. President Xi and his wife, Peng Li Yuan, arrived in Florida on Friday afternoon ahead of a dinner meeting at the White House Uh, The winter White House, White House officials have tried to manage expectations by stressing that they are uh, simply setting a framework for future diplomatic and military talks. In a brief on um, rather a briefing on Tuesday, one administration official characterized the talks over dinner and Friday working lunch as simply an opportunity for the two leaders to exchange views on each other's respective priorities and to chart a way forward for the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. We'll see how that goes. Here's how the media covered it. Uh, the um, New York Times wrote that at Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's meeting with his Chinese counterpart this week will be the most important diplomatic encounter for the president so far. His two days of talks at Mar-a-Lago with President Xi Jinping will test whether the two men, Mr. Trump and unpredictable novice, Mr. Xi, a tightly scripted, experienced leader, can begin and effectively uh, begin, rather to effectively manage the world's most significant bilateral relationship. Bloomberg said this the stakes for China for Xi the meeting represents an opportunity to establish a personal rapport with Trump and potentially stave off a trade war that threatens to make Chinese uh, economic though rather China's economic slowdown much more painful. Yet it also carries a risk an errant Trump tweet uh, or the off the cuff remark seen as disrespectful could give ammunition to party members who want to thwart Xi's reform plans. And this is what the American conservative wrote. Of particular concern is how the threat of North Korea will be negotiated if the CIA fact book is to be believed At. Uh, At last count, the Chinese supplied more than 76 percent of all North Korean imports and bought more than 75 percent of its exports. The North Koreans are heavily dependent on China for, among other vital supplies, their oil. Their moribund industrial sector would grind to a halt without copious supplies of spare parts and indeed entire machines sourced through China. And on Taiwan National Review wrote, the one China policy is a trap that has been uh, has been plied by uh, Beijing to legitimize and strengthen the CCP dictatorship, squeeze Taiwan's international space and force Taiwan to kneel at Beijing's feet. President Trump should take a fresh look at the one China policy and honor the right China, end quote. That's how the media covered uh, this most important visit. We're going to take a break now to talk with Rachel Bovard about the uh, nuclear option exercised by the Republicans earlier today. And then we'll talk with Judy Bush, executive director, and Joni Militich, church liaison of Prep for Kids. We'll return to more um, news uh, in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley, who uh, staged something of a 15-hour speech-a-thon in the days leading up to today's uh, rule change, um, didn't mince words in attacking the change in rules uh, put in place by Senate Republicans to push through the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch, calling it the uh, judicial coup. He said that this nuclear option put a knife in the heart of the republic. Wow. This is just the latest example of hyperbolic utterance. But nonetheless, that's what the Oregon senator had to say about it. Well, how big a deal is this? And is the republic on the verge of bleeding out, as uh, Senator Merkley would suggest? We're well, here to talk with us about that is Rachel Bovard. Uh, she is with the um, Heritage Foundation. I appreciate so much you're joining us today. Thanks for having me. So what do you think, first of all, about um, Senator Merkley's a uh, suggestion that the nuclear option put a knife in the heart of the republic, first of all, I was thrilled that he called it a republic rather than a democracy, but that's a whole nother matter. Your thoughts
3: yeah, that may have gotten the been the only thing he got to, he got right in that <laughs> yeah. comment um you know, it's pretty interesting, uh, comment that he put out there considering that he voted to go nuclear in 2013, uh, when Harry Reid put, did, you know, invoked the nuclear option for all other judicial nominees. Uh, it was all the lower court judicial nominees, just not the Supreme Court. So, uh, maybe he forgot that he, he voted for that, but essentially all this did was expand what Harry Reid already did, uh, several years ago.
2: Well, you know, I appreciate you're putting it in a broader context because, the, the suggestion is that this is such a dramatic change from what's happened in the Senate in recent years, really in, in decades, uh, that this is a dramatic shift in, in the republic in the way we do, uh, we do lawmaking, uh, when in fact this is sort of the logical extension of what's been happening for some time, particularly under the leadership of Harry Reid.
3: Right. I mean, Harry Reid was the first to invoke the nuclear option in 2013. Again, for all lower court judges. I mean, this is an expansion, you know, of that effort. It is significant. I don't want to downplay mm-hmm. it. Um, but again, it's not unprecedented. It's not, you know, Harry Reid really was the first person that really broached this. And McConnell is just stepping it up and taking it to now all judicial nominees have have gotten rid of the filibuster. So it's not just the lower court. It's now um, Supreme Court. And, you know, it it does put some. Uh, People have concerns that the legislative filibuster will be next, because right now that's the only place the filibuster still exists is for bills and legislation. Um, But right now it's still intact. Uh, Senator McConnell has said he has no plans to undo it, but we'll see.
2: Yeah, in fact, uh, Senator McConnell said this is the latest escalation in the left's never-ending judicial war, the most audacious yet, and it cannot and will not stand. Then he went on to say this will be the first and last partisan filibuster of a Supreme Court uh, nominee. Let's talk about how dramatic a shift this is in the way this deliberative body, the U.S. Senate, uh, will will uh, function moving forward, in particular in um, exercising its role as, of uh, providing advice and consent.
3: Yeah, I think it's a big shift, particularly in terms of Supreme Court nominees. I mean, as McConnell, Senator McConnell mentioned, this is the first and only partisan filibuster that's been mounted against a Supreme Court justice. So it was unprecedented in that regard. But I think what you'll start to see is more ideological nominees. I mean, you don't need to overcome that 60 vote threshold anymore, meaning you don't necessarily need the votes of the other party. So, you know, Trump, if there's a vacancy open you know, in the next four years, could put someone or nominate someone um, that doesn't necessarily have to appeal to Democrats. I mean, Neil Gorsuch, whether Democrats liked him or not, you really couldn't make the argument that he was outside by the mainstream. I mean, most judicial scholars agreed on him. The ABA supported him. Um, but I think if Trump is unhindered by the, the nuclear option, or I'm sorry, the filibuster the next time around, he may pick someone who's a little bit more to the right and ditto if Democrats are in charge, you know, in this next election cycle.
2: Well, John McCain, the senator from Arizona, uh, he too was very concerned about this move. He said, I fear that someday we will regret what we are about to do. I am confident we will. It is imperative we have a functioning Senate where the rights of the minority are protected, regardless 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 of which party is in power uh, at the time. And certainly that has been compromised in this process of getting her done, if you will.
3: No, McCain is right about that. I mean, the nuclear option overturns, you know, centuries of Senate tradition um and precedent. And it is. The filibuster is sort of the last bastion of minority rights in the Senate, and that is what distinguishes the Senate from the House, you know, is the strength of the minority, the ability of the minority to slow legislation down, use the filibuster for leverage and negotiation. Uh so this is going to functionally change the way that the Senate operates. Um and if the filibuster is to be eliminated for legislation, you really won't see a big difference anymore between the House and the Senate. They'll so both the majoritarian
2: institutions. Mm. Well, um, Jeff Merkley said that this uh, this nuclear option, as it's been referred to, is the latest in a string of Republican slights that began shortly after the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And of course, he's hearkening back to the fact that President Obama's uh, nominee, Merit Garland, did not get a hearing. Um, despite the fact that uh, the principle had been spouted before, uh, primarily by the the vice president who was at the time a senator, that it's it's a bad idea to move forward with a Supreme Court nominee uh, during an election year. That notwithstanding, and there were efforts to try to explain that away, um, uh, there was not a hearing, and the the Democrats are still very angry about that.
3: Yeah, that's true, and you know that has been the the. Focal point of their objective to Gorsuch is that he's not Merrick Garland. You know, they couldn't even find any material objection to him other than that. But at the end of the day, the Constitution doesn't require uh, the Senate to rubber stamp a, a president's, you know, Supreme Court pick. Their role is to give advice and consent. And at the end of the day, the Senate chose not to act on Merrick Garland, which is within its constitutional right. The Senate can choose to act or not act. Um, and as you mentioned, they were sort of following the tradition laid out by Joe Biden when he was a senator, um, and when he basically said, "Look, if it's an election year, we don't. It's not appropriate for us to confirm a Supreme Court nominee this close to the American people, you know, potentially changing." their choice uh, for who is president. So they were following precedent, but also they were well within their constitutional rights to do it. I know Democrats were upset, but, you know, that's kind of how the cookie crumbles when it comes to Senate politics.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, principle only goes so far, it seems, in Washington uh, as, uh, you know, what ultimately is in your best interest. If your ox is being gored, then suddenly principle isn't quite so meaningful as it was at the time the, the words were, uh, were stated. Well, today, um, the impediment to confirming Uh, Judge Gorsuch was removed, but he was not confirmed today. What happens moving forward?
3: That's right. So the Senate got rid of the filibuster, but they still have to overcome cloture, although it's not at 60 votes. It's just at the regular majority threshold. So they are now in what's called post-cloture time, uh, and that's 30 hours of debate, limited to 30 hours. So that will run uh, likely overnight and into tomorrow. And when those 30 hours are done, the confirmation vote will occur for Neil Gorsuch probably around 7 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow.
2: Well, it will be uh, interesting. At that point, is there any discussion? Uh, Is it simply a matter of uh, yay or nay? What's the procedure at this point?
3: Yeah, it'll be a simple up-and-down vote at a majority threshold for his confirmation. Once you've overcome the filibuster, the process is a lot easier. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing now. There'll be minimal debate. Um, each senator has a 10 minutes if they want it. But other than that, um, it'll be, you know, not a lot of talking and then a vote to confirm. And once he's confirmed, I expect he'll be sworn in either Friday night or early, early, um, you know, Saturday or Monday morning.
2: As Mitch McConnell had suggested would be the case. Um, that, uh, that timeline is precisely what we can expect over the next uh, day and a half. Well, thank that's you so much right. uh, for, for talking with us uh, today. Just one other question. Moving forward, what do you see as uh, the potential biggest problem? Because my guess is under this administration, there's going to be another opportunity to nominate a, a sitting Supreme Court uh, member. Uh, what do you see as the greatest challenge moving forward in that function of uh, offering advice and consent to that future nominee?
3: Well, I think the biggest, uh, you know, hurdle, which is the filibuster has been done away with. So I think Democrats are going to make it procedurally difficult for Republicans in ways that don't actually block the nominee, but are incredibly annoying to deal with. Uh, you saw a few of those on display today, right before the nuclear option was invoked. Senator Schumer made motions to adjourn. He made motions to postpone. You're going to see a lot of these procedural um, you know, back and forth. They may not provide a quorum and committee to give the nominee a hearing. I mean, things that ultimately don't slow or don't block the nominee, but do slow down consideration. Um, and that's, you know, the Democrats basically protesting uh, the nuclear option if a, sec- if a second nominee is made.
2: Rachel Bovard, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it very much. Rachel Bovard is an experienced hand on Capitol Hill. She's the director of policy services and outreach at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I'm delighted that with me in studio right now, right here in the same room, is the Executive Director of Prep for Kids, Judy Bush. Also, Joni Militich, who is the church liaison for Prep for Kids, is with us in studio, and I'm delighted to have you back. Thanks for coming. Thank oh, you, thank Georgine. you. Well, let's begin by explaining what Prep for Kids is. It's Portland Release Time Education
4: Program, but what is that? Oh, my goodness. that's a, <laughs> That we operate under a parent's rights law in the state of oregon and we have legally the right to have bible classes during school time we can't do it on school property but if a parent comes and says i want my child to have bible training um it's legal and we do we've been doing it since 1984. isn't it an amazing thing you don't think about that possibility
2: here in a public mm-hmm. school setting that there would be a provision carved out so that students when their parents consent have the opportunity to receive some Bible training. I grew up in the church. I went to Sunday school, and so much of my understanding of and appreciation of God's Word came from those early years in Sunday Mm -hmm. school. And to think that a child has an opportunity who may not... Uh, go to church, mm-hmm. has an opportunity to learn some of the basic tenets of the faith, as well as have an encounter with Christ is an amazing thing in the 21st century in the Portland metro area.
5: <laughs> yes. It's it so
2: is. exciting. Yeah. It, it really is. Really it's exciting. God's done this all the way. Well, um, where are Prep for Kids classes held? They're not on campus, as you pointed out.
5: Where do the kids go? Nearby churches, churches that are um, within the neighborhood of a, a local school, open their doors. And often that church, that we call it a host church, um, also provides the required minimum for uh, parent volunteers uh, and teachers that staff the class. And between the church and those volunteers, uh, the transportation is worked out, getting the kids there for about an hour once a week. Now, one of the
2: reasons I wanted to emphasize that is to just illustrate what a tremendous opportunity there is for the church mm-hmm. now, I would assume that every church in the Portland metro area <laughs> has a prep, you know, that's close to an elementary yeah. school would have a prep for kids uh, class I- at their facility.
4: How are we doing in terms of having church availability and opportunity? Well, it's it's actually getting better. Mm-hmm. We actually some churches are getting a hold of this, but I did too when I first started in eighty five. I thought, oh, and wait till the churches find out about this. You know, it's a ministry right here in our neighborhood with kids that have never heard. But there's still a long ways to go. Mm -hmm. We still got a lot of churches and schools that we have no Christian witness in.
2: Now, I imagine for a church, they're thinking we've got our own youth program, we've got our own. There's a lot of stuff going on at the church already. How much are they responsible for in terms of providing curriculum, for example, and some of the nuts and bolts of uh, of hosting a prep for kids uh, class at their church? And how much does prep provide uh, for them so that it's easier to uh, to host?
5: Actually, um, we have the whole program, so we provide the structure. It's like a, I think of it as like a backpack, ready to go. You know, we've got the kit, Um, so we liaison with the school for them. Um, We provide the basic training for the church volunteers. We provide the Bibles, the curriculum for their study and for the students. Um, this, This spring, numbers of students are going to be taking Bibles home. Uh, with them, because they don't have their own, um, so we provide the curriculum, the Bibles, the training, and um, the the oversight to get them going and support them along the way. I did note one um study
2: that indicated that children in release time classes did as well as or better than uh, others academically than their classmates who do not attend, so the concern that well if i'm if my child once a week is uh, removed from the classroom, uh, that may make it less likely that they're going to keep up with their peers or succeed. But
4: studies indicate that's not the case. It actually helps. It does. Absolutely. The the National Organization for Release Time is School Ministries, and they've made studies, the same thing, and they've come up with the same results that the kids do do better. And even when I taught, some teachers would come up to me and say, boy, we see a difference. We Mm -hmm. see a difference in that child's life. And that's what makes it so exciting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, who are the the workers, the volunteers who
2: uh, oversee these kids so that parents know, okay, I'm I'm allowing my child to leave <laughs> campus.
4: Who has them? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Um, well, it's a variety. Um, quite a few of the classes are run by retired teachers that just love Jesus, and they come together as a team, um, retired couples that will come every week, and together they will um, get a hold of the kids and take them to the church and, and share Christ with them. Um, the some parents, it's, just, it's a real mixed thing. Um, but God has brought us some very, very yeah. gifted teachers. And I wanted to emphasize, too, that every volunteer...
2: Who is spending time with children? They go through an extensive application process, a criminal background check, mm-hmm. and parents are free to uh, to visit the class and see who the, the the teachers and volunteers are, and to actually yeah. witness what what goes on. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, yes.
4: Now, how does a child get to um, uh, Prep for Kids? Oh, wow. Um, well, we're only in thirty-two schools, so but those thirty-two schools, if they go to the office, the office can give them a form. Um, many many times, though, it's a parent of another child or children themselves will invite a friend and they just have to have a written permission from the parents. And then we go into the school and pick them up. And um, so you provide the transportation yes. from the school yes. to the site and then back again.
2: Yes, absolutely. So essentially everything is provided for parents don't have to concern themselves with coming in the, you know, the middle yeah. of the day mm-hmm. to make sure their child gets to and from where they need to go.
4: Right. Right. Right.
5: We have detailed procedures for classroom, transportation, the teaching, um, with training um, each fall when we begin, um, and regular coordinator meetings, so there's supervision and oversight of our, our teams. So what happens in a typical
4: Prep for Kids class? Well, we um, our curriculum is the focus of it all. I mean, the, the, the kids will come in, they usually will do some singing, they memorize scripture, um, they it's it's neat because none of them are really big classes, and so the one of the big things they get is personal attention mm-hmm. from adults, and the kids love it. You know, they just even when they leave in fifth grade, usually they'll say, "Oh, can't we do this in middle school? Can't we do this in middle school?" And that we're working on that. We really <laughs> want to do that too. But then the focus of our lesson, we um, take the kids through the Bible every five years. We have great curriculum. It's the Answers in Genesis curriculum is just awesome, and they. They open their Bibles. They're not just told stories, which Mm -hmm. the stories are there, but we give them a Bible. They open their Bibles with a worksheet and they are just taught, you know, how to, okay, what does this verse say? What does it mean? How can it change my life? And our goal, our overreaching goal is that they will develop a biblical worldview. They'll see the world through God's eyes. That's our goal. I love what the website says. It says, Our approach systematically follows
2: God's progressive pattern of revealing his character and his plan of redemption within the context of history. And over that uh, period of five years, they begin in Genesis in the first year, the creation, the patriarchs through uh, Joseph. Uh, they move on in the second year to Moses through, through David. Year three, the kings and the prophets. Year four, the life of Christ. And year five, the New Testament church, which is where you are this year in the New Testament church. And then next
4: year, you'll start at the uh, at the top again. Actually, we have one more year in this one. We have have church next year. I'm just finishing up the syllabus. Oh, wonderful. So yeah. And so then that will, yeah, that'll complete our five year cycle. It's so exciting. And and we've actually done this, you know, now we've got all the curriculum set up. So that piece is in place and we have people that give us Bibles. They give us money to buy, purchase Bibles. So yeah, we're ready to go again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What a tremendous opportunity for families to carve out, and I, th- I think a lot of parents are concerned about what their children are exposed to in the general culture, sometimes even on the school campus, to give them an opportunity to step away for an hour once a week and just consider what does God's Word have mm-hmm. to say? How do I handle if I'm being bullied? What, do, what does God's Word have to say about the world around me and the things that I might be fearful about? And to open His Word in, in an age-appropriate way for these children with adults who love the Lord, who love these kids, are willing to take their time Uh, to teach them, that is just an amazing thing. Why aren't there 150 (laughs) Prep for Kids opportunities around the, the metro area? Well, one of the reasons I enjoy having you here is to just uh, encourage our listeners to use their imagination just a little bit what if my church was to take this on mm-hmm. uh, it sounds to me and maybe i'm i'm mistaken but it sounds to me like you all have done a tremendous job providing resources and outlines of what needs to be done the law says this is perfectly acceptable children who are participating in this release time do do very well if not better than their peers mm-hmm. What a tremendous opportunity to reach out in the community where the church is located. And my guess is when you're ministering to kids, you eventually minister to
4: their parents as well. We do. We do. And some many of the teachers, when they get done, they do an email to the parents. So mm-hmm. the parents get a, a few pages of just what the lesson was. Yeah, yeah. And that is, that is bonded them. And that's, that's made connects with these parents, which goes beyond just sending their kids to a class. All right. We're going to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation. Before we
2: do that, though, how can uh, anyone who's already interested right now, what's the best thing for them to do to say, either as a parent, uh, I want to send my child, or as a church or volunteer, I want to be a part of Prep for Kids? What's the best way for them to communicate with you?
5: Um, they can get hold of us at our office. They can go on the website. Uh, And we'll be glad to just take whatever their entry-level question is. Um, I was thinking just yesterday, uh, PVC, like the PVC piping, kind of represents what helps uh, prep move and flow. We need parents. We need volunteers. We need churches. And we just love the opportunity to, to get to dialogue with parents for Um, why this ministry is separate and unique from what their child receives on a Sunday, largely because we have an academic window, Mm -hmm. kids are in that mindset, and we can do systematic inductive Bible study in an interesting way, share apologetics, uh, cultural and historical evidences for our faith. And um, we want to let... yeah. Calling our office is great.
2: That number, by the way, 503-281-7764, 503-281-7764. We'll repeat that after the break, so don't run off the road. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We are back. Forty-nine minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio are my friends Judy Bush. She's the executive director of Prep for Kids, and Joni Milicic. She's the church uh, liaison with Prep for Kids. We're we're not only um, hoping to inform you today, but to just. Uh, ignite a fire under many of us to say this is something we could do if we want to reach out to our neighborhood this is a tremendous opportunity to communicate with the families that live in in the in the same area as the uh, as the church so a great uh, great ministry great opportunity i hope you'll take uh, full advantage of it now we were talking about um, the fact that kids uh, who are in church on sunday um, might do what adults do, and that's kind of compartmentalized church. You know, things of church, they, they happen on the weekend. For a child to have the opportunity who has a believing family to come together with their peers in the context of their school, it seems to me that it communicates a message of the relevance of uh, the gospel and a relationship
5: with God in a very different context that I think will serve children well. Absolutely, absolutely. What we find is that um, because we're within the academic part of the child's life. And kids' thinking is black and white. It's concrete. Mm -hmm. They associate facts with school, and teachers is the ones who know facts. And so if in the worldview they get at school, God is not a reference point. Um, He's not living within their world of facts as their worldview is building class by class. So because we have an academic time slot, Kids are in that mindset already. This is about facts. I'm going to be studying so we can crack those Bibles open and do inductive Bible study. Um, As I mentioned before the break, share culture and history that Mm -hmm. surround the Scripture, our evidence-based faith. And um, it becomes part of their shaping worldview and their world of facts. Um, And it's different than what often churches are able to do on a Sunday morning in their their programs simply because um, of the variety of needs they're meeting on a Sunday morning. Mm. The other extreme value, I think, for um, already believing kids is that they are learning side by side with probably 50% of the kids in that prep class that are hearing about Jesus for the first time. And we all know the vitality that that is when we're interacting with somebody who's hearing these truths for the first time. Mm, and yes. they actually watch God transform their friends' lives often, and they're part of that by inviting them. So it's it's a very vital uh, time in their lives. I think, Judy, during the break, you also mentioned it's a it's an encouragement for many of
4: these kids to meet other Christian kids who are in their public school setting as well. It is. It is. They'll come home and say, you know, I just met such and such, or I didn't know she was a Christian all this time. And so it kind of, for themselves, on the inside, you know, I'm not the only Christian type yeah. thing. is That can be really discouraging. But they begin to discover, and there's other kids, even non-church, that want to come to these classes. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's very popular with the kids, as long as we can get the word out to their parents. We're talking about Prep for Kids, which stands for Portland Release Time Education Program.
2: It's a nonprofit, non-denominational Christian outreach to children attending public schools here in the greater <clears throat> excuse me Greater Portland area. And the mission is to help kids and their families find purpose and direction in uh, in life by using God's Word during uh, release time religious education, which is permitted in the state of Oregon and other places around the uh, the country as. Um, as well. This is what one little fifth grader uh, had to say about her experience with PrEP for kids. She writes Something I learned about PrEP is about Jesus and God, how we sin and that He died on the cross for us. I really love PrEP and I always can't wait. Until it's Wednesday. (laughs) She always can't Can't wait. wait, (laughs) And then a mom, a grateful mom says, my son, this is from the websites. You can find this there. My son went to his first day of prep on Tuesday. I have to tell you, he absolutely loved it. As soon as he walked in the door, he told me all about it. Then he recited his verse he was to memorize. Thank you so much for giving my son this opportunity. He's looking forward to coming every Tuesday from now on thank you again and these are just a couple um examples of the joy that this program has brought to families whether we're talking about the children or the parents
4: yes absolutely we um we hear from the parents not you know kind of sporadically because yeah, yeah. we really don't have connect with them but when you do for some reason we call i mean we really try and keep up with the kids and so if they're not there we we connect with the parents and ask why and, and sometimes it's a class and they just don't want to miss it for a while or you know there's there's some valid reasons mm-hmm. And so we don't force the kids to go, but we can talk to the parents. They, they tell us what's really there, you know, the nitty gritty of what these kids are coming home and sharing and, um, and seeing the changes in their lives is for the teachers. And we, like, we have our coordinators meetings tomorrow and Monday and the stories that they come with, you know, the, the changes with these kids' lives. And, um, it's, it's why we do it. Yeah. You know, we see the What change. a blessing. Well, what can parents do to get involved? First of all, enroll their kids. How do they go about that? They can go online and get a permission slip. Um, they have to have that filled out. They can call. They probably want to call the office first, though, or online. Well, website says that, too, what schools we have. Mm-hmm. We're all the way out to Banks and then Forest Grove and then down to several in Oregon City and out to Gresham. So we cover a big area. Um, so first they find out if their school has a class, and then they just need to get a, a form and fill it out and get it to the school, and we will go from there. And by
2: the way, that uh, Prep4, it's the number for Prep4Kids. Is it .org or .com? .org. .org. I think I had it written down here wrong. Uh, Prep4Kids.org, and uh, there you can find out if there's a school in your area. If there isn't, well, maybe you want to... Take steps to make that happen, right. and that right.
4: happened a year ago when we were on your program. Mm-hmm. A couple that he by was what milking cows. He was working on his yeah. farm. He heard <laughs> <it>. your <laughs> broadcast. And they were planning to do it themselves. They wanted to have their children, their well two girls actually, and their friends to have them in Bible study, and we just fit what they were, yeah, you know, they were wanting, and so you know, con- connect with us, you know, tell us your story, and where you're at, and. Um, there's just lots of opportunities. Absolutely. And if you happen to be a part of a church that is looking
2: for an outreach into the community and you find out that there's nothing going on in your particular area, this is a great time to begin mm-hmm. that conversation to make it possible in the fall of 2017 mm-hmm. uh, to have a prep for kids opportunity yes. in your community. Now again, the website is prep the number 4 kids prep 4 org, and that telephone number 503 503- two eight one seven seven six four again that's five oh three two eight one seven seven six four um, I was looking at the website. You can enroll your child. You can join a parent prayer group for your school. Tell other parents about release time. Send a note to your public school thanking them for release time. Be proactive within your public school. Visit your child's release time class, which would be a, a real fun uh, opportunity. Learn what we teach firsthand. And that first visit, you can just come unannounced. But uh, from that point forward, you encourage parents to uh, to let you know so you can make sure all the children are protected and those who come to those mm-hmm. classes um have been screened. Start a release time class in your area. Let me repeat that one because I think uh, given the fact that there are 30, how many? 32. How many opportunities, how many schools in our area? Oh, there's two or 300. Uh, Hundreds. Yeah, Yeah. 32, two or 300. Yeah, lots of opportunities. 32, (laughs) two or 300. So start a release time class in your area. That's something you could probably uh, do. Look around, what churches are in the area? Maybe you're in a church, in a community that could benefit and become a Prep for Kids volunteer. I want to talk a little bit about that because it requires adults who are willing to spend some time uh, teaching these kids, helping to manage them, transporting them hither and yon. Uh, what uh, what do you need to do or be to volunteer?
5: Anyone interested in that today, um, like Judy mentioned that a year ago when we were here, um, uh, one of our now coordinators and teaching couples were working on their farm and contacted us and said, how can we start a class for our girls' school? Um, Just get in touch with us if you'd like to volunteer. We need a variety of gifts and skill sets. Um, Even if your church is not the host site for Mm -hmm. a class, we can plug you into a class somewhere else. Some of our most exciting classes are multi-church teams, multi-church operations Um, and we'll get you started with the application process, which you actually can just start on our website and send in electronically your application, and we'll be in touch with you from there and find a place for you to serve. Um, There are, uh, just like in the Scripture, there are a few teachers, and then there are many service gifts. And so if you're not a teacher person, uh, don't hesitate to call. We just need people with the Spirit of Christ in them And love for kids to be present in those classrooms. Um, Yeah, get in touch with us. Well, I come
2: from a long line of Sunday school teachers. And on my bucket list is someday, Lord willing, when I retire, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to be a part of Prep for Kids. I just think that would be such a fun thing. And I I benefited by adults who took, uh, took the possibility of my coming to faith seriously when I was very young. And I became a believer when I was very young. I want to return that. Mm -hmm. Uh, to others who maybe don't have the opportunity through a church in their community, but do have an opportunity through release time. Um, So I'm looking forward to that one day, (laughs) being a part of for Kids. Now, once again, I want to repeat the telephone number, 503-281-7764, or the website... Prep, the number 4 prep Prepforkids.org. prep Now, I know you're probably driving. You might be in the middle of fixing dinner. But don't forget, if if the Lord has put something on your heart, be sure to be in touch. If you forget all of this, you can go to my Facebook page for information, or you can uh, call us here at the station, and I'd be happy to uh, pass the information along. Um, but let's make Prep for Kids something that's uh, happening in far more schools than the 32 that are currently taking advantage of this opportunity. I want to thank both of you for being here today and for your commitment to serving children in our community. Thank you so much. you're
4: welcome. We love it. We love the opportunity you've given us to share with the city what we're doing. All right. Judy Bush, Joni Miletic, Prep for Kids. We're going to take a quick break. We've got,
2: what, news and traffic here at the top of the hour, so stick around. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, welcome back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this uh, hour, we're going to talk with Rachel Boulevard. We're actually re-running uh, a conversation I had with her earlier in the day, and we uh, played earlier in the program about the uh, confirmation of Judge Gorsuch, the process. The Senate had a showdown earlier today. It led to the so-called nuclear option. We'll try to put that into context uh, and what impact this is likely to have on the U.S. Senate. She'll be uh with us at 5:30 for that uh, that conversation. Also I didn't have the opportunity to mention it during my conversation with Judy Bush and Joni Militich uh with Prep for Kids, but they would really appreciate it if you would pray for this ministry. Uh we w- were talking during the break and as they were leaving just now, it's so fascinating to see how God orchestrates things together and provides um uh, needs and opens doors in a in a Uh, environment that isn't necessarily welcoming uh, to the idea of release time, but by law is required to uh, permit it. Uh, So if you would just remember them in prayer, um, there are lots of children in our community who are hearing the gospel for the first time because of this program and others who are growing in their faith are being encouraged and so on uh, with prep for kids. So I did want to mention that. Well, back to some of the, uh, the news. Therefore uh, I mentioned earlier that the president is meeting with the, president of China. And uh, there are four issues that are top of mind for this meeting. North Korea will, of course, be at the top of the agenda for the president's meeting uh, this uh, this afternoon with President uh, Xi Jinping. Um, uh, Trump suggested his predecessor, President Obama, allowed North Korea to grow stronger and said uh, Wednesday during a Rose Garden press conference with King Abdullah of Jordan Um, I'll be meeting with the president of China very soon in Florida, and that's another responsibility we have, and that's called the country of North Korea. We have a big problem. We have somebody that is not doing the right thing, and that's uh, going to be my responsibility, he went on to say. White House House officials, rather, said there were a number of other items the two leaders will discuss, one being trade and commerce, uh, paramount during uh, Trump's campaign, where he frequently took shots at the Chinese. It will be interesting to hear, although we're not going to be Privy to the conversations if he is as brazen face to face as he was during the campaign. The meeting today and Saturday at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's estate in Florida, will be a significant chance for both leaders to learn about one another. China is coming here to try to figure Trump out. He's not like a president they've ever seen before. He's not a president they can talk. They can walk all over. Uh, says one former State Department official in the George W. Bush administration. He's now a senior vice president for the Center for Security Policy, a national security think tank. Uh, Some of the issues, North Korea, of course, they initiated a missile test this week aimed at Japanese waters, but the test reportedly failed. The country previously conducted a missile test in February, several in 2016. And I noted, and if I can find this uh, real quickly, um, I noted that uh, we are being told that North Korea's capacity... Uh, is increasing rather dramatically. The general who commands America's nuclear arsenal uh, on Tuesday warned about North Korean missile advances, calling it very challenging in remarks to a Senate panel. At the same time, General John Hyten, a U.S. Air Force commander of the U.S. Strategic Command, he expressed frustration about the lengthy delays and budget instability that he said are hindering the ability to modernize the nation's nuclear deterrence. Speaking to the full Senate, Uh, The Armed Services Committee, he said North Korea now has the capability to deploy an intercontinental ballistic missile. And he hinted, hinted rather, it's only a matter of time before they can do it with a nuclear warhead. He said the rogue Asian nation also demonstrated new capacity, new capability in February uh, that moved them into a new league. Uh, with solid fueled missile technology. And at this same gathering, one of these uh, official experts made it clear that by the end of the, uh, the Trump administration, they might have the capability to reach Seattle with a, a, a ballistic missile. So it's, a, it's becoming um, a much more uh, serious threat than it had been in the past. Trade is another issue. The administration recognizes it's economically independent, or rather interdependent with, uh, with China, but they're going to insist that all bilateral trade be mutually beneficial, according to the White House. President Trump is very concerned about how the imbalance in our economic relationship affects American workers. He wants to address these issues in a candid and productive manner. That's a quote from a senior White House official. He went on to say that President Trump will convey to President Xi the importance of establishing an economic relationship that is fair. We want to work with the Chinese in a constructive manner to reduce the systematic trade Uh, and investment barriers that they've created that lead to an uneven playing field for U.S. companies. Also, the South China Sea. Late last year, China expanded artificial uh, islands. They seized an unmanned underwater drone belonging to the U.S. Navy in the South China Sea. The United States will certainly continue to fly and sail where international law allows, a senior White House official told reporters. Um, I would not be surprised if that came up in the conversation. He went on to say he and his uh, cabinet members have said that uh, on, uh, on the record that that has to stop, referring to the president. This is, again, a matter in which the administration allowed China to show too much assertiveness uh, said one critic, China will uh, look at American leadership. The lack of leadership has been very destructive. Religious freedom and human rights. One would hope that this would be on the uh, on the itinerary. Uh, Mr. Fulitz, uh, I quoted uh, from uh, earlier, uh, also said that the Trump administration would uh, make a strong statement about China's mistreatment of the Uyghur community in Xinjiang. Uh, 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 which human rights groups have criticized. He said there are several issues to address specifically, but hopes Trump speaks boldly and broadly about China's abysmal human rights uh, record in that meeting. As we know, the uh, UN uh, Population Control uh, Panel was uh, defunded, or at least the United States portion of that funding was withdrawn, um, uh, specifically in response to the one-child policy in China. So we've already taken steps uh, in that um, in that area Secretary of State Rex Tillerson he concluded his maiden visit in China on the 19th of last month in a Uh, cordial tones and warm handshakes following his talks with the president and other senior Chinese officials on the 19th. He said he uh, placed very high value on communications and diplomacy between the U.S. and China. But whilst extolling the virtues of diplomacy between the two countries, Mr. Tillerson may also have missed a strategic opportunity to place Beijing on notice, namely that America will no longer tolerate China's aggressive behavior in the South China Sea and more generally in the Western Pacific. Again, we'll see if that is a um, an issue that is expressed uh, by the administration in the meetings with uh, the president of China uh, that uh, will extend into tomorrow. Also, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, said today that steps are underway on an international coalition to pressure Bashar Assad from power. As President Trump was being briefed on military options for Syria, though what specific steps the U.S. and its allies might take in response to the latest deadly chemical weapons attack remained unclear. The president said yesterday at a press, it wasn't really a briefing, but when questioned, that he was not going to be like previous administration in which the details of our response were announced ahead of time so that they could be uh, that the. targets could be preparing uh, to thwart the effectiveness of those uh, plans. America's top diplomat addressed the Syria crisis a day after the president declared in the Rose Garden that the chemical strike would not be tolerated. Now we've heard about the bright red line from the previous administration what uh, these uh, chemical strikes will not be tolerated means under this administration. We'll have to wait and see. Tillerson uh, pointedly said that Russia should consider carefully its support for the Assad regime while calling for an international effort to defeat ISIS In Syria, stabilize the country, and ultimately work with partners through a political process that leads to Assad leaving power. Now, this came just days after uh, the administration indicated that that was not on their agenda, removing Assad from power. A few days later, the chemical attack, and now we have these strong words uh, when Mr. Trump said he was deeply moved by what he saw, particularly children who were either killed or uh, in video struggling to survive this uh, chemical attack. Uh, asked if the US would re- organize a coalition to remove Assad Tillerson said those steps are underway hmm it's a serious matter it requires a serious response Tillerson said adding the recent attack violates all previous UN resolution uh, resolutions violates international norms and long-held agreements as you may know the UN Security Council held an emergency meeting yesterday in which the US uh, UN ambassador to the uh, the US ambassador rather to the UN had some very strong words about the kind of response the, that the UN should uh, prepare for. Tillerson made his remarks in West Palm Beach, Florida, after welcoming the uh, president uh, from China for the two-day summit with Trump en route to Florida. Trump also said the attack shouldn't be allowed uh, to happen, asked if Assad should go. Trump said um, he's there and I guess he's running things, so something should happen. Kind of imprecise, but that's a direct quote. Well, the statement came amid discussions at senior levels of the Pentagon and White House about the next moves in Syria and reflected a newly aggressive stance some mere days after the administration, as I mentioned, appeared ready to accept Assad as the country's leader for the foreseeable future. But I, my guess is that uh, timeline has constricted considerably. The foreseeable future is much more, um, uh, much sooner than uh, was originally thought in the at the time the statement was made. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We are back. uh, What time is it? About 19 minutes after five o'clock. By the way, if you didn't have an opportunity to hear a conversation I had with Rachel Bovard earlier in the program, Uh, We're talking about the Gorsuch confirmation and the the rule change in the Senate, what that means moving forward. She'll be uh, we'll be uh, rebroadcasting that conversation in our next segment. I also want to mention that if you want to give your child a rich Christ centered education, you might want to take advantage of the listener savings on school, Christian school tuitions that has been extended. KPDQ listeners can save up to 40 percent on top Christian schools in the Portland area. Uh, so visit ListenerSavings.com dot com right now to save that's ListenerSavings.com. dot com. Well, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee announced today that he is stepping aside from the investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, at least until he can clear himself uh, of the baseless ethics complaints filed against him by uh, activist groups on the uh, on the left. Uh, Representative um, Devin Nunes, a California Republican, said ethics charges that have been filed against him are entirely false and politically motivated, but said uh, the committee is better off not having to deal with the added distraction. Uh, He went on to say, uh, I believe it is in the best interest of the House Intelligence Committee and the Congress for me to have Representative Mike Conaway uh, with assistance from Representatives uh, Trey Gowdy and Tom Rooney temporarily take charge of the committee's Russian investigation while the House Ethics Committee looks into uh, this matter, he said in a statement. I will continue to fulfill all my other responsibilities as committee, committee chairman, and I am requesting uh, to speak to the Ethics Committee at the earliest possible opportunity in order to expedite the dismissal of these false claims, end quote. Well, Mr. Nunes has uh, faced a barrage of criticism over the way he handled the Russian probe. Democrats have called on him to recuse himself from the probe, questioning whether he is too close to the uh, Trump administration to carry out the investigation of allegations of a collusion between Russian officials and the Trump campaign. So they are calling out a partisan uh, from the partisan standpoint, so you've got a, 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 a senator who's got a R behind his name and the D's and R's that sit on the same committee are suggesting that this whole thing is too political. Anyway, the chairwoman and ranking member of the Committee on Ethics said uh, today... Uh, that they're looking into allegations of unauthorized disclosures of classified information that have been uh, leveled against Mr. Nunez. Interestingly, they're focusing on him, and rightly so. If there is a breach, that needs to be discovered and dealt with. But they're not really very interested in the possible breach by others, namely in the previous administration, having to do with operatives of the campaign, um, a transition team, and administration. That followed. Anyway, the committee notes that the mere fact that it is it is investigating these allegations and publicly disclosing its review does not itself indicate that any violation has occurred or reflect any judgment on behalf of the committee. That's a, a quote from Representative Susan Brooks. An Indiana Republican and Theodore uh, Deutsch, a Florida Democrat, in a statement. A White House spokesman refused to take sides, saying this is an internal matter of uh, for the House, and they'll wait for the outcome. Representative Adam Schiff, the ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee, said, "Mr. Nunes." Uh, made the correct move in stepping aside, at least temporarily. I know this was not an easy decision for the chairman with whom I have worked well for many years. Mr. Schiff, by the way, is a California Democrat. He did so in the best interest of the committee, and I respect that decision. Well, House Speaker Paul Ryan, meanwhile, said that Mr. Nunes made the right move as well and retains uh, his trust. House Minority Leader uh, Nancy Pelosi, on the other hand, a California Democrat, said she hopes the committee can move forward with a fair investigation. Now that Mr. Nunes has handed over the reins to Mr. Mr. Conway and Mr. Gowdy um, and Mr. Rooney of Texas, South Carolina and Florida, respectively. The barrage of criticism uh, Mr. Nunes faces uh, centers around a March 20th meeting he had at the White House. After the gathering, Mr. Nunes hastily held a press conference outside on the lawn uh, to announce that he had just viewed raw intelligence reports showing Mr. Trump and his associates had been swept up in U.S. surveillance of foreign targets and unmasked. Uh, It's the unmasking part of that scenario that is illegal. It is under certain circumstances, uh, under most circumstances, in fact, a felony. Well, according to regulations governing international and domestic surveillance of foreign targets, the names of Americans incidentally collected are required to be blacked out or masked, as they say, uh, when the information is later compiled in a report for privacy purposes. Mr. Nunes says he's uh, seen uh, Trump campaign names unmasked. And in addition to being unmasked, those names were Uh, made widely available to the press, which, again, is a violation of law. So uh, apparently any um, appearance of impropriety has at least been dealt with superficially. Hopefully the investigations, and there are far too many of them at this time, but necessary, I suppose, uh, can move forward as quickly as possible so the people's business uh, can be done by those who are in Washington For that purpose. Uh, Meanwhile, um, Senator Tom Cotton, with regard to the other investigation, or at least allegations, uh, in an interview with Hugh Hewitt. uh, pointed out that Susan Rice is the typhoid Mary of the Obama administration's foreign policy. Every time something went wrong, she seemed to turn up in the middle of it, whether it was these allegations of improper unmasking, potential improper surveillance, which I'm guessing has to do with many others besides her, but including her, whether it was Benghazi or many other fiascos over the eight uh, years of the administration – um, City Journal points out that the way the news broke about this whole thing is almost as shocking as the news itself. An independent social media personality built a huge online platform from nearly nothing in just three years, and he's now getting legitimate nationwide security scoops. It does raise some questions, which are part of one of these many investigations. Meanwhile, House Speaker Paul Ryan announced today that real progress, that's in quotes, is being made in a revamped effort by Republicans to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. He highlighted a new amendment by two House lawmakers that would restructure risk pools in the plan. High risk pools, rather, are a mechanism to subsidize more expensive insurance coverage for those who are seriously ill. Cha-ching is the word that would follow and whether or not it contributes to the deficit and how you avoid that being a part of the formula. The House Rules Committee met Thursday afternoon to, to consider the amendment offered by Representatives Gary Palmer of Alabama and David Schweikert of Arizona, both of whom are members of the Freedom Caucus, the group that effectively blocked the first uh, health care bill uh, brought by Ryan. Now, I, I know that's true, but there were many others who did as well. So it wasn't solely this relatively small group, given the larger numbers of the House. But they are most often cited as having uh, put an end to it. But there were many moderate and mainstream Republicans who opposed it as well. Anyway, uh, they voted nine to three to advance the amendment, which will uh, next go to the House floor for a full vote, though no schedule has been set. Well, House members then headed home for a two week recess uh, on Thursday. What now, Clark, when does our two week recess come? Do you realize in April they're only there a couple of days? (laughs) They just they work very little during this season, I think you and I need a recess, a two week recess. It's not going to happen. But anyway, <laughs> uh, they do have a two week we- recess in April. I, I think it's for uh, Easter. And I would only hope and pray that these members would go to their respective home districts and they would spend some time reflecting on the passion of the Christ. And maybe uh, that might influence the decisions that they make moving forward. But I dare to dream. Anyway, Uh, They're they're headed into their two week recess today. Republicans still face deep division in the uh, party over the best way to repeal and replace Obamacare. By the way, that whole thing in the um, uh, that I'm talking about the House, that whole thing in the Senate uh, confirming the next Supreme Court justice. That will happen tomorrow. Uh, Before lawmakers uh, left, Ryan tried to strike an optimistic tone and praise the Palmer Schweikert amendment, saying their amendment makes this a much better bill. This amendment alone is real progress, and it will help us build momentum toward delivering on our pledge to the country. Orion added that there are other ideas Republicans are working on to build consensus, but did not provide any detail. So the process continues, and we'll just uh, follow it as it does. By the way, repealing the Affordable Care Act could reduce the deficit by as much as $1.07 trillion, according to a report uh, from the Mercatus Center. Former President Obama promised the Affordable Care Act would not only guarantee health insurance coverage for Americans with pre-existing conditions, but that the law would lower health care costs and reduce the federal budget deficit. Well, the report notes that Obamacare failed to deliver on providing any fiscal benefits and that repeal of the law would substantially reduce the budget deficit. Now, before you uh, uh, get the confetti going, whatever they replace it with has the potential of doing uh, equal damage to the deficit, so we need to wait and see what they plan, if they ever do, uh, to replace it with before we celebrate too loudly. Repeal effective in 2018 of the Affordable Care Act's various spending and tax increases is expected to reduce federal deficits by a combined 586 billion dollars through 2026, with uh, plausible outcomes ranging from $228 billion to $1.07 trillion in net deficit reduction, the report states. Well, savings might be reduced to $228 billion if the Obamacare exchange enrollment is larger than estimated, if the cost-sharing subsidies uh, had been terminated, or if the Medicaid woodwork uh, population had been underestimated, which it was not. Savings could be as high as 1.7 trillion. However, if Obamacare's insurance rules are repealed, if taxes remain uncollected, and if the Medicare, uh, rather the Medicaid expansion costs are less than expected, so there are a lot of ifs followed by other ifs. If you carry the. Uh, The two and add the four apostrophe S. We don't really know what's likely to happen, but it's a possibility. By the way, the number of patients using the nation's first physician assisted suicide program in Oregon, uh, Death with Dignity Act, has continued to grow since voters first approved the law nearly two decades ago. A new study shows that a 12 percent yearly increase in lethal prescriptions from 1998 to 2013, with an unexplained jump of nearly 30 percent in 2015, The research doesn't include 2016 numbers, which uh, haven't been released yet, so the number could be even higher. The growth reflects an increased awareness of the act among patients and physicians as more states adopt similar laws, according to the Oregon Health Sciences University oncologist and lead author of the study, Charles Blank. The study, one of the first detailed analyses of 18 years of death with dignity data, indicates the law is working as intended. In other words, people are dying at their own hands with the help of their doctors to give dying uh, patients, dying people, a choice on how they want to die. Sadly, that uh, remains the law in Oregon and has expanded to other states as well. Up next, I want to share a conversation I had earlier in the day with Rachel Bovard from the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the Gorsuch confirmation process, the showdown that took place earlier today, leading to the so-called nuclear option preceded by a filibuster and what that means in the broader context and the future of the U.S. Senate. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley, who uh, staged something of a 15-hour speech-a-thon in the days leading up to today's uh, rule change, um, didn't mince words in attacking the change in rules uh, put in place by Senate Republicans to push through the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch, calling it the uh, judicial coup. He said that this nuclear option put a knife in the heart of the republic. Wow. This is just the latest example of hyperbolic utterance. But nonetheless, that's what the Oregon senator had to say about it. Well, how big a deal is this? And is the republic on the verge of bleeding out, as uh, Senator Merkley would suggest? We're here to talk with us about that is Rachel Bovard. Uh, She is with the um, Heritage Foundation. I appreciate so much you're joining us today. Thanks for having me. So what do you think, first of all, about um, Senator Merkley's a uh, suggestion that the nuclear option put a knife in the heart of the republic. First of all, I was thrilled that he called it a republic rather than a democracy, but that's a whole nother matter. Your thoughts?
3: Yeah, that may have gotten the been the only thing he got to, he got right in that <laughs> yeah. comment. Um, you know, it's a pretty interesting uh, comment that he put out there considering that he voted to go nuclear in 2013 uh, when Harry Reid put, did, you know, invoked the nuclear option for all other judicial nominees. Uh, it was all the lower court judicial nominees, just not the Supreme Court. So uh, maybe he forgot that he he voted for that, but essentially all this did was expand what Harry Reid already did uh, several years ago.
2: Well, you know, I appreciate you're putting it in a broader context because, the, the suggestion is that this is such a dramatic change from what's happened in the Senate in recent years, really in, in decades, uh, that this is a dramatic shift in, in the Republic in the way we do, uh, we do lawmaking, uh, when in fact this is sort of the logical extension of what's been happening for some time, particularly under the leadership of Harry Reid.
3: That's right. I mean, Harry Reid was the first to invoke the nuclear option in 2013. Again, for all lower court judges. I mean, this is an expansion, you know, of that effort. It is significant. I don't want to downplay mm-hmm. it. Um, but again, it's not unprecedented. It's not, you know, Harry Reid really was the first person that really broached this. And McConnell is just stepping it up and taking it to now all judicial nominees have have gotten rid of the filibuster. So it's not just the lower court. It's now um, Supreme Court. And you know, it it does put some. Uh, people have concerns that the legislative filibuster will be next, because right now that the only place the filibuster still exists is for bills and legislation. Um, but right now it's still intact. Uh, Senator McConnell has said he has no plans to undo it, but we'll see.
2: Yeah, in fact, uh, Senator McConnell said this is the latest escalation in the left's never-ending judicial war, the most audacious yet, and it cannot and will not stand. Then he went on to say this will be the first and last partisan filibuster of a Supreme Court uh, nominee, Let's talk about how dramatic a shift this is in the way this deliberative body, the U.S. Senate, uh, will, will uh, function moving forward, in particular in um, exercising its role as, of uh, providing advice and consent.
3: Yeah, I think it's a big shift, particularly in terms of Supreme Court nominees. I mean, as McConnell, Senator McConnell mentioned, this is the first and only partisan filibuster that's been mounted against a Supreme Court justice. So it was unprecedented in that regard. But I think what you'll start to see is more ideological nominees. I mean, you don't need to overcome that 60 vote threshold anymore, meaning you don't necessarily need the votes of the other party. So, you know, Trump, if there's a vacancy open, you know, in the next four years, could put someone or nominate someone um, that doesn't necessarily have to appeal to Democrats. I mean, Neil Gorsuch, whether Democrats liked him or not, you really couldn't make the argument that he was outside the mainstream. I mean, most judicial scholars agreed on him. The ABA supported him. Um, But I think if Trump is unhindered by the the nuclear option or I'm sorry, the filibuster the next time around, he may pick someone that's a little bit more to the right. And ditto if Democrats are in charge, you know, in this next election cycle.
2: Well, John McCain, the senator from Arizona, uh, he, too, was very concerned about this move. He said, I fear that someday we will regret what we are about to do. I am confident we will. It is imperative we have a functioning Senate where the rights of the minority are protected, regardless of which party is in power. Uh, at the time, and certainly that has been compromised in this process of getting her done, if you will.
3: Now, McCain is right about that. I mean, the nuclear option overturns you know centuries of Senate tradition um, and precedent. And it is. The filibuster is sort of the last bastion of minority rights in the Senate. And that is what distinguishes the Senate from the House, you know, is the strength of the minority, the ability of the minority to slow legislation down, use the filibuster for leverage and negotiation. Uh, so this is going to functionally change the way that the Senate operates. Um, and if the filibuster is to be eliminated for legislation, you really won't see a big difference anymore between the House and the Senate. They'll both be majoritarian institutions.
2: Mm. Well, um, Jeff Merkley said that this uh, this nuclear option, as it's been referred to, is the latest in a string of Republican slights that began shortly after the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. And, of course, he's harkening back to the fact that President Obama's uh, nominee, Merit Garland, did not get a hearing, um, it, despite the fact that uh, the principle had been spouted before, uh, primarily by the, the vice president, who was at the time a senator, that it's, the, it's a bad idea to move forward with a Supreme Court nominee uh, during an election year. That notwithstanding, and there were efforts to try to explain that away, um, uh, there was not a hearing, and the the Democrats are still very angry about that.
3: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, that has been the, the focal point of their objection to Gorsuch is that he's not Merrick Garland. You know, they couldn't even find any material objection to him other than that. But at the end of the day, the Constitution doesn't require uh, the Senate to rubber stamp a, a president's, you know, Supreme Court pick. Their role is to give advice and consent. And at the end of the day, the Senate chose not to act on Merrick Garland, which is within its constitutional right. The Senate can choose to act or not act. Um, and as you mentioned, they were sort of following the tradition laid out by Joe Biden when he was a senator, um, and when he basically said, Look, if it's an election year, we don't it's not appropriate for us to confirm a Supreme Court nominee this close to the American people, you know, potentially changing their choice uh, for who is president so they were following precedent but also they were well within their constitutional rights to do it I know Democrats were upset but you know that's kind of how the cookie crumbles when it comes to Senate politics
2: yeah absolutely and you know principle only goes so far it seems in Washington uh, as uh, you know what ultimately is in your best interest if your ox is being gored then suddenly principle isn't quite so meaningful as it was at the time the the words were Uh, Were stated. Well, today um, the impediment to confirming uh, Judge Gorsuch was removed, but he was not confirmed today. What happens moving forward?
3: That's right. So the Senate got rid of the filibuster, but they still have to overcome cloture, although it's not at 60 votes, it's just at the regular majority threshold. So they are now in what's called post cloture time. Uh, And that's 30 hours of debate, limited to 30 hours. So that will run uh, likely overnight and into tomorrow. And when those 30 hours are done, the confirmation vote will occur for Neil Gorsuch probably around 7 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow.
2: Well, it will be uh, interesting. At that point, is there any discussion? Uh, Is it simply a matter of uh, yay or nay? What's the procedure at this point?
3: Yeah, it'll be a simple up-and-down vote at a majority threshold for his confirmation. Once you've overcome the filibuster, the process is a lot easier. Um, and that's kind of what we're seeing now. There'll be minimal debate. Um, each senator has 10 minutes if they want it. But other than that, um, it'll be, you know, not a lot of talking and then a vote to confirm. And once he's confirmed, I expect he'll be sworn in either Friday night or early, early um You know, Saturday or Monday
2: morning, as Mitch McConnell had suggested would be the case, um, that uh, that timeline is precisely what we can expect over the next uh, day and a half. Well, thank you so much uh, for for talking with us uh, today. Just one other question. Moving forward, what do you see as uh, the potential biggest problem? Because my guess is under this administration, there's going to be another opportunity to nominate a a sitting Supreme Court uh, member. Uh, What do you see as the greatest challenge moving forward in that function of uh, offering advice and consent to that future nominee?
3: Well, I think the biggest, uh, you know, hurdle, which is the filibuster has been done away with. So I think Democrats are going to make it procedurally difficult for Republicans in ways that don't actually block the nominee, but are incredibly annoying to deal with. Uh, you saw a few of those on display today, right before the nuclear option was invoked. Senator Schumer made motions to adjourn. He made motions to postpone. You're going to see a lot of these procedural Um, you know, back and forth. They may not provide a quorum and committee to give the nominee a hearing. I mean, things that ultimately don't slow or don't block the nominee, but do slow down consideration. Um, And that's, you know, the Democrats basically protesting uh, the nuclear option if if a second nominee is made.
2: Rachel Bovard, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it very much. Rachel Bovard is an experienced hand on Capitol Hill. She's the director of policy services and outreach at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety-three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, if you had the opportunity to listen to the program earlier, and I hope you did, we spoke with Judy Bush and Joni Militich. Judy is the executive director. Joni Militich is the church liaison for Prep for Kids. It's a release time um, Christian education program. I say Christian. It's a religious education program that is an option available to parents. Uh, they can choose to send their kids to excuse them from an hour of classroom time to uh, go off site uh, to a church nearby or a facility that's been designated for Christian education. Um, So we talked a bit about uh, kids who are unchurched and the fact that for many of them, that's their first introduction uh to the lord jesus and certainly to god's word. Well, I noted that uh, Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam published a groundbreaking book. It's called Bowling Alone. It was published in 2000, and he argued in that book that Americans uh, reduced interest in civil uh, civic engagement rather by which he meant not only things of a political nature But also things like the PTA, Boy Scouts, groups like the Elks, and yes, bowling leagues, had reduced the store of what is called social capital. Well, social capital is what sociologists call the networks of relationships among people who live and work in a particular society or community, enabling that society to function effectively. Well, this is more than theory. It gets to the heart of one of the pressing issues of our time social and economic inequality. And while Americans as a whole prefer to bowl alone, this solitude isn't equally distributed. As he uh, documents in the book, his most recent book, Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, one thing that separates children from families in the top 25% of households measured by income and education for their uh, counterpart, rather from their counterparts, in the bottom 25% in social capital. Uh, The well-off parents featured in Our Kids were, if anything, exhaustingly engaged and enmeshed in far-reaching networks that made life better for their kids. And while we shouldn't be surprised that good connections offer better-off kids a significant advantage over their poorer counterparts, there's something else that provides another significant advantage, and that is religious participation. Church-going kids. These kids are less prone to substance abuse, drugs, alcohol, smoking, risky behavior like not wearing seatbelts, and delinquency, shoplifting, misbehaving in school, being suspended or expelled. Now, that doesn't mean every kid who goes to church abstains from all of these, but they're less prone to these kinds of abuses. The benefit of regular church attendance um, doesn't stop there. As Putnam tells us in his book, and again, we're talking about a Harvard Uh, professor. Compared to their unchurched peers, youth who are involved in a religious organization take tougher courses, get higher grades and test scores, and are less likely to drop out of high school. Now, taking your kid to church for the sake of doing better in school is not the motive of going to worship in a community of believers, but this is, I think, encouraging to parents who do. They also have better relations with their parents and other adults, have more friendships with high-performing peers, are more involved in sports and other extracurricular activities. Again, quoting from his latest book, Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. In fact, he goes on to say, church going is so beneficial to academic performance that a child whose parents attend church regularly is 40 to 50% more likely to go on to college than an unmatched child of non-attenders. Now, I would just add a little proviso in there, and this is just my uh, thinking on the subject. I have no research to back it up. I think if you have parents who not only take their kids to church and they're a part of a a church community, but parents who also walk out their faith once they come home again, that probably contributes a significant um, benefit to these kids as well. It's not enough to just take them. I remember... Families in my neighborhood where the kids were picked up by a bus, they went to church, they came back, mom and dad did whatever they pleased in the morning. It was their kind of sleep-in vacation time. I think it's important what happens in the home with these Christian parents as well. End of uh, uh, my comments. Anyway, he goes on to point out that this is true regardless of socioeconomic status. Poor kid, rich kid, it still benefits uh, children who are uh, churchgoers. The problem is that regular church attendance is increasingly tied to socioeconomic status. According to Putnam, while weekly church attendance among college-educated families since the late 1970s has remained more or less the same, it has dropped by almost a third among those with a high school diploma or less. The result is a substantial class gap that did not exist 50 years ago. It's yet another way that poorer kids are failing and falling behind their more affluent counterparts. Their moms and dads are taking them to church less often. They're not deriving the benefit of that uh, community. Well, given the benefit of regular church attendance, the insistence on minimizing the role of religion in American public life is, to put it mildly, Perverse. Society hasn't figured out how to reliably give poor kids access to the kinds of advantages, both material and intangible, than better off kids uh, and the the things they take for granted. But we, the church, do know how to reach out to them and their families in Jesus' name. We have millennia of experience in ministering to the least, the last, and the lost. And now we have evidence that this kind of ministry has benefits that few people, Christians or non-Christians, ever suspected will today's cultural uh, culture despisers of religion pay heed uh, probably not but we owe it to the kids all kids to ignore those naysayers and to freely give them what they have freely received Eric Metaxas, the host of the Eric Metaxas show and co-host, uh, co-host rather of Breakpoint uh, points out the study. Uh, one that I think is certainly worthy of consideration. And for those of you who do children's work, that book, once again, by Harvard sociologist, Robert Putnam, our kids, the American dream in crisis might be a great resource. Um, prep for kids is a wonderful introduction to children whose families do not necessarily take them to church and uh, supporting uh, prep for kids gives uh an opportunity for them to perhaps reap some of the benefits uh, that this most recent study uh, makes clear. Well, tomorrow I am taking the day off. I'm going to hang out with a friend of mine who, uh, is enjoying spring break this week. I'm also attending a board meeting and doing my taxes, so it's not entirely a day off, but nonetheless, I won't be here. But I do want to let you know that on Monday, we're going to talk with Mark Toby, co-author of Clash of Kingdoms, what the Bible says about Russia, ISIS, Iran, and the end times. So look forward to that. And then on Wednesday, our Radiothon with Africa, New Life. Hope you'll join us for Holy Week right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Thanks to Clark Hilton for engineering, James Blend for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice show and like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 kpdq.